Genesis 17. So this week, I was reading about fleas. If you read about fleas, you'll just start itching somewhere. You'll be like, oh, what's that? Ow. Like all of a sudden you have like things crawling on you that are not there. Your brain, like the brain is a really freaky thing. So I'm reading about fleas itching myself where I shouldn't. And I was just fascinated by them. They cost Americans $8 billion annually. Woo. They killed a third of the European population in the plague. Right? That's un- unbelievable. This tiny little creature. But they're, they're extraordinary. They can jump 150 times the length of their body. They're the, they're the greatest jumper in the animal kingdom. It would be equivalent to me jumping over the Empire State Building, which I could probably do given some exercise. <laughs> this is unbelievable. They have this protein called resilient that's very unique to them. It actually explodes, it builds up and explodes in their muscle, and that's what allows them to jump that far. They can pull a thousand times their body weight. Take your body weight, put three zeros behind that, and imagine pulling that. That's a lot, right? So there was these, for a long time, there are these circuses with fleas because they're so like incredible, these incredible creatures. Like, look what they can do. Uh, We don't really have those anymore because we have YouTube. So all the good stuff is gone now. But here's what's amazing. You have this flea that has all this potential and all this power, all these, you know, giftings and all this stuff. If you put that flea in a little jar and you put a glass pane on top of that jar, it will jump up, hit its head on that glass pane for five minutes, six minutes, eight minutes, maybe 15 minutes. And then it will stop jumping that high. It will jump about a millimeter underneath that lid and you can take the glass lid off and it will not jump out of the jar. You've trained it. It hit that ceiling too many times. Boom, boom, boom. And then it gives up. And all the potential it has and all that it could do, it no longer does it. I think humans are a lot like fleas. That in life, we have dreams and potential and ideas and all this stuff. And we jump and then we hit our head on something enough times. And then we never quite jump that high anymore. It's called a glass ceiling. And I think, personally, in Genesis 17, God is dealing with Abraham in that same way. He's telling Abram, no more. The glass ceiling, I got to break it. So what you see in this chapter is really two things. God marks Abram, and then he does something brilliant and big. So we're going to go through that pretty quick. Uh, Wednesday night, we'll do more work on this. Seven o'clock, if you want to, right here. So Genesis 17, verse 1. First, Abram is marked. When Abram was 99 years old, what does that mean? He's old, right? It's starting out that way. It's reminding us this dude is ancient old. He's old. Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you. and You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. 
Not Abram, father of many. Abraham, father of many nations. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Verse five, I will make you, verse six, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will give you nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between you and me and your offspring after you. So God comes, kind of reiterates some of the promises, expands on them to Abram, and then says, you have to keep my covenant. So Abram's like, cool. Abraham now, cool. What's the covenant? What's this covenant I need to keep with you? Well, God tells him, end of verse 10, every male among you shall be circumcised. That's how you get a 99-year-old man's attention. If he was kind of napping right here on this long lecture, he's like, what? <laughs> what did you, what did you, what did you, what did you? oh no, <laughs> right? Like, oh, great. Covenants most often have a mark. So when you get married and you covenant yourself to your spouse, very often in the ceremony, at some point, the pastor will say, do you have a token of this covenant? And then what's the token of the covenant? The ring, right? The ring marks me, marks you as somebody that's married. I have covenanted myself with my wife. And now I wear this because it lets everybody else know, oh, he's a marked man. He belongs to someone else. That's what it is. It's a mark. The Mosaic covenant comes in a couple of 400 years after this in the book of Exodus. There's a mark for the Jewish people. This is to mark you as my people. You know what that mark is? Sabbath day. If you've been to Israel, do not try to accomplish anything on Saturday. The, you can't buy anything. It's unbelievable. The whole place shuts down. Elevators don't work. It just shuts down because it is a way that they are marked out as a covenant people, according to the Mosaic covenant. We look differently. We act differently. And it shows. It's a mark, right? So God here, God here so far has been doing this with Abram. I'm going to give you I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna make your kids as many as the stars are. I'm gonna make you a blessing to all nations. I'm gonna give you this land. God has been acting unconditionally and unilaterally. I'm gonna do this stuff. But here in chapter 17, God now says, I want you to do something. I've made all these promises. I've been generous to you. I've been protecting you. Now, Abram, Abraham I want you to do something in chapter 17. This hits on a big debate in Christianity. What do you and I do when it comes to our salvation? When it comes to our sanctification? When it comes to our glorification? What do we do? 
And what I see is very often people end up in these two extreme camps. Over here, over there. Over here is this, I call it the just God camp. That when it comes to our salvation, we do nothing. God saves us. He sanctifies us. He transforms us. He glorifies us. And then we're, we're taken home. We are passive. So we don't do anything. So that's the just God camp. And I talk to these guys. Interesting conversations. And my analogy is this. It's like this. This is what I see of them. This is what seems to happen to them. Um, this happened about 12 years ago. I was doing swim lessons with my two-year-old daughter, Isabella. And I had my four-year-old daughter, Carissa, there. And my wife, we were with Myrna Shanifelt, awesome lady. So um, my wife, though, was eight and a half months pregnant with Gabrielle. So she's there. Chris is there. I'm in the water with my two-year-old, Isabella. And I'm there with like eight or nine other little two-year-olds who are in the water. And guess what they're doing? Screaming. I don't want to lay on my back. I don't want to go on my back, right? They're all just screaming. It's this symphony of screaming. So there's just this symphony of screaming. Well, my wife, who is exhausted from 30 feet of walking, is sitting in a chair. So she's just like, ah, ah, sitting, you know, everyone, you're always hot when you're pregnant. Like, ah, it's so hot. So she's there doing that. <laughs> it's true. So I can, you know, I'm not, okay, you're hot. All right. I believe you. So she's resting, doing her thing. Chris is at the edge of the pool and there's these older kids. They're like 10, 12. They're jumping the pool. They're swimming across. They're moving their arms and swimming and making it to the other side and getting out. Well, Chrissy just decides, I'm doing that too. So she just shink, jumps in at four, sinks to the bottom like a lead weight. All right. I don't see it because I'm busy. I've got screaming kids. Myrna's facing us, so she doesn't see it. Nobody sees it except Charity, who is great with child. And when you're great with child, you don't just get out of a seat or you'll leave something behind, like the baby. So she's working her way out of this chair. You know, she's like trying to work out and she's like, Matt, she's screaming at me, but I can't hear her because screaming babies. Like it's just a symphony. So I'm just keep doing my thing, just screaming, screaming. She's Matt, Matt, Matt. Like we don't know that it's happened until she's at the edge of the pool and she's ready to jump in. And it was like the entire tape just froze. Like the babies were like, ah, <laughs> right? Everyone just stop. I'm like, tidal wave. I didn't say that. I did not say that. <laughs> I know it's so bad. So <laughs> she's not here right now. I don't think, is she here? I'll change it for next service. So, <laughs> so Myrna Shanefield grabs her by the hair and like pulls her out, you know, and she's spitting up water and coughing and everything like that. I think sometimes that's what happens to people. They're just God people. They're like, all I have to do is just jump in. No, you got to swim, right? There's, there's something you've got to do. And they sink into their couches and they're like covered in Doritos and drowning in them. I'm like, how's that working for you, bro? How's that working? It doesn't seem so good. But then the very other side is this other extreme where it's, I call it the just do it crowd. You got to just do it. And they're like, they're swimming laps and they're sweating and they're guilted and they're always kind of angry. And they're always like, why aren't you doing more? They're always like, just kind of, they're edgy. They're like, Ugh, you don't really want to be around them because they're kind of caustic. So those are like the two extremes. I think they're both like, hmm, they get some things right, but they miss on other things. I think there is actually a, 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 a right place in the middle for your Christian faith. And you're seeing it walked out with Abram. And it's not just God or just do it. I call it just dance. That's a dance. 
that God moves and we follow. And it's this beautiful symphony. And I didn't invent that, C.S. Lewis did. He said, Christianity is a dance where we follow God. We're in his steps, if you would, moving and responding to what he does. And Abram here, he's seen this beauty of God for now years. And now he's like, I will respond. I'll participate. So his circumcision is, is not him, if you would, keeping the covenant. It's him participating in it out of desire and want to. And you'll see on Wednesday, man, he has no problem with it. He jumps in and swims both feet. So very often I will talk to people about this and I'll try to, I straighten out with two questions usually. I'll say this, number one, number one, what did your salvation cost you? I'll ask you that. What did your salvation cost you? Nothing. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That it is a gift of grace through faith, that not of yourself, that lest anyone should boast. That's what it is. That we are saved by grace through faith alone, not of works lest anyone should boast. It's a gift. It's free. Your salvation costs you nothing. But then I ask a second question. What does your faith cost you? I say everything. Second Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. There should be a response. God, you've been so good to me. How can I not follow you and dance with you? It's both those. So here we see Abram, Abraham responding and he'll respond well following the dance moves. He's marked. So how today, we're not under this covenant, how today are we marked? If there's a mark that usually follows the covenant, then how today are believers marked? Is it a Jesus tattoo in Greek on your arm? please let it be that because I really want one. My mom will have to let me know. Right? Is it the bumper stickers that we put on our car? And there's some good ones. Jesus is coming back and boy, is he ticked. One of my favorites. How about this one? Have you ever seen this one? The bread of life never gets stale. That is epic. No one should have that on their car. No one deserves to have a Jesus sticker. You don't drive good enough to have a Jesus sticker on your car. I don't have a Jesus sticker on my car. You know why? Because it would be a very bad witness. I thought about putting a Jehovah's Witness bumper sticker on my car. Because there'd be like no one going there. Like, I hate those people. Man, I saw one of them. He was driving like a maniac. <laughs> is that what marks us? T-shirts, what is it? You could argue baptism. There's definitely a mark there, but that's an internal mark kind of in the community of faith. You could say the Lord's Supper because Jesus says, hey, do this in remembrance of this new covenant, this new thing. And, and you know, I, could, I can agree with those, but I think when it comes to the world looking at us, our mark as a separate community of faith, there's only one. And Jesus says it, it's John 13, 34 and 35. He says, by this, all men shall know you're my disciples by your love, one for another. That the mark of the new covenant community of faith, not circumcision, not Sabbath, it's love. In fact, 1 John 3 repeats the same thing a little bit more theologically. That's what marks us. It's our love. And that love is actually supposed to look like something. 
Like sometimes we can just throw around the word love, but 1 Corinthians 13 says, you can actually identify love because it looks like these things, these 15 qualities. That should be the mark of the believer. There should be love. So, so it works out like this. I'll give you this example. At my house, I pick up towels and I put them away. I do that not to show my wife I love her. I do that because I love her. Do you understand the difference? I'm not like, watch this, sweetie. Look, I am picking up the towels for you. See how much I love you? No, it's a natural response to how much I care for my wife. That it just naturally, my life is shaped differently because I love her. I do those things naturally, not like, oh boy, I better clean those. Charity's gonna go crazy ballistic if she sees this towel. Not that at all. It's not that, it's I love her. And so my life is shaped by that love. That's what's supposed to happen to you and me. As we pursue, as we dance with God, our life is supposed to begin to look differently. That's what's supposed to happen. Is your life shaped by love? Is it different? Not because you're guilted into it, not because you have to, but it's simply because, like picking up a towel because you love your wife, like you do that, is your life shaped that way? That's the mark of the believer. All right? So Abram is marked now. He's marked. But it's more than just a mark. God's doing something underneath that I find brilliant. Look at this, if you would, for a second. So let me repeat, if you're new, the story that we've been studying. Here's what happened. Abram, this pagan, is called by God and told, hey, leave Ur of the Chaldees, probably not the best place for you. Go to a land I'm going to show you. Abram obeys and goes there, Right? God works with him. God comes and says, I'm going to give you kids that if you looked up the stars, you couldn't count them like that. And it says that Abram, amen God. Amen, all right. Then chapter 16, massive blow it case, right? The Hagar affair. The, the, oh no, the fighting between he and Sarai. Just, it's a really, really dark chapter. It's hard. It's brutal. There's, there's family problems. There's marriage problems. It's, oh, there's running away. It's, ah, right? You got that chapter. The next chapter is God coming back to Abram, coming back to him, not leaving him. And this is what he does. God returns and he changes Abram's name and Sarah's name. So Abram means father of many, right? Sarai was probably a pagan name. So imagine this now for probably 80 years, They've been married probably 80 years. Abram, who means father of many, would have strangers over, people over. They would introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Abram, father of many, and this is my wife, Sarai. And they'd be like, oh, that's awesome. How many kids do you guys have? What's his answer? You know, I don't have kids yet. Yet? Bro, you're 99. What do you mean yet? You're going to get busy, man. Right? Just the embarrassment of that year after year after year. I don't have kids yet. I don't have kids yet. But that's a goofy name you got, man. You might think about a nickname. So God comes up, bro, I'm going to change your name. So Abram's like, oh, finally, huh? How about Elijah? How about Boaz? Nope. Abraham, father of many nations. Oh boy. Oh my goodness. I have to go home and tell my wife and my friends, hey, God changed my name. What to Abraham? What? Yeah. Father of many nations. Oh dude, (laughs) this is terrible. What's God doing here? What's God doing? Here's what I think what God is doing. Abram, now Abraham, his dream 
his dream had been lost. His dream of he and Sarai having kids and fulfilling this promise of God had been lost. And like a flea for 25 years, he'd been jumping, 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 and now he'd given up. So God's coming and saying, uh-uh, buddy, this is what I'm gonna do for you. He is settled like so many of us do. Because we've hit the roof, because things have happened to us, because of life, we start to settle. We start to settle. And that's what's happened. Oh, Matt, how do you know he's settled? Here's how I know. Look at verse 15. And God said to Abraham, new name, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. See, back in verse three, when God said, hey, I'm gonna make you the father of many nations, Abram falls on his face. Like, okay, cool. Like, because he thought, oh, it'll happen to Ishmael. Then God says, uh-uh, that's not how I'm doing it. Remember your dream you've had for 80 years that you and your wife would have a child? That's what's coming. See, Abraham was settling for an Ishmael when God says, I have an Isaac for you. I have a laughter for you. I have a joy for you. You and your wife are gonna have this. You're gonna have a son together. It was a, if you would, God enlarging the promise, not just father of many, father of many nations, and it's coming through the original plan. Go back and dream again. I'm awakening you to your right dream. I'm breaking that glass ceiling. It's a way, I believe, because of the mistake in chapter 16, that they are rebirthed again made childlike again. You get new names, new start, new dream. Don't give up on it. It's huge to me. So I have this book. I mentioned it on Wednesday night a couple weeks ago. It's called Adam's Return. Fascinating kind of book about um, rite of passages throughout history, throughout the world. It's fascinating. And the author says this, and it was something that I underlined, like wrote notes in the side because it, it really interested me. He said this, he said, what happens to a boy especially if a boy does not witness greatness as a young kid? If he doesn't witness greatness as a young kid, a deep cosmic dissatisfaction settles into his heart and he begins to look at life with disappointment and cynicism and say, this is so boring. And I wrote like, whoa. You know why? Because I've already seen that happen. I've already seen that happen with my kids. Like if I took a group of four-year-olds and I put them on a lawn with nothing else, would I have to entertain those four-year-olds? No way. I'm gonna have to contain them, right? Get out of the street. What are you doing? Don't pet that dog. Do not play with the bull. Get away from the bull, right? You're gonna have to like contain them because they're just gonna have life and love and they're gonna get zest. All right, same circumstances, put a bunch of 14-year-olds there. What's going to happen? It's so boring. Man, I hate this. It's so stupid. Right? Put a bunch of 40-year-olds there. What's going to happen? 
we're all gonna fall asleep. <laughs> Something happens, right? There's a progression that begins to happen. God here is trying to break that progression up. He's saying, no way. I want you to dream again. I become too small to you. You don't think I can do that anymore. You're settling for Ishmael when I want to give you an Isaac. You become a flea that will not jump high anymore, and I'm breaking the jar you're in. That's what God's doing right here. Abraham, dream again. Abraham, have laughter again. Sarah, have hope again. Dream. Is anything too hard for me? Dream. I think it's the same thing that Jesus does with his disciples. If you read the gospel of Matthew, there is a text in Matthew. It's the harshest rebuke Jesus ever has for his disciples. It's Matthew 17. Jesus goes up on a hill, is transfigured, has the heavenly vision, the view of what life is supposed to be, comes down from that hill. His disciples down below were trying to cast a demon out of a guy, a, guy, uh, a boy, and they could not do it. Jesus just goes berserk. You faithless and perverse generation, how long do I have to put up with you? You're like, whoa, where'd that come from? And he casts the demon out. And his disciples are like, oh my goodness, man, we blew it. And they're like following behind for a while. And they finally like catch up and he's just like, um, like, like, what happened back there? And Jesus is like, listen, if you had faith like a mustard seed, he would say to this mountain, be uprooted, and it would be cast into the sea. You guys, your God's too small. You guys, your dreams are too small. Are you kidding me? Think big. That's why he was so brokenhearted there. And you go forward a couple chapters. Chapter 19. Jesus is dealing with this rich young ruler. And he's inviting this rich young ruler into life and participation and kingdom. And the rich young ruler refuses. And he walks away. And Mark tells us that Jesus looked on him with great sadness. Oh, you're missing out. And then Jesus begins to talk to his disciples and says this, man, it's hard for rich people to get saved. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get saved. And perhaps you've heard the teaching on that, that in cities, there was a gate called the camel gate or the eye of the needle. That late at night when the big gates were closed, if you wanted to get into a city, you would use the eye of the needle. And if you want your camel to get in there, you have to unload the camel, get the camel to get down on, on its knees and shuffle through the gate. Have you ever heard that before? Okay, there's no such thing. I went around the entire city of Jerusalem last year. I memorized every single gate I had to do for a test around that city. There is no eye of the needle. It was people wanting to soften the extremely hard words of Jesus. Never soften his hard words. Listen to them well. The only way a camel is getting through the eye of a needle is if you have a blender and a lot of time. <laughs> That's it. Okay? So Jesus immediately after that explains it, he goes, with God, nothing is impossible. Believe. Disciples, believe. If you had a grain of mustard, you'd say this mountain, get, are you kidding me? Nothing is impossible with God. That's what Jesus is trying to get at. Dream. Like Abraham. Dream again. Don't be a flea. Don't be satisfied with the jar you're in. Dream. Don't settle for an Ishmael when God has an Isaac for you. 
because life does something to the person. At 99, it had done it to Abraham. Finally, he'd given up. So God comes and rebirths him back into childlikeness and says, you got a new name and I want you to dream again. Dream, dream. The Bible is full of these texts that are telling us dream. Ephesians 3.20, now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or even think be the glory. Dream. 1 Corinthians 2.9, eye has not seen and ear has not heard the wonderful things that God has in store for those that love him. Dream. John 14, 12. You've seen the great things I've done, Jesus speaking. You guys are gonna do even greater things. Dream. David, when he says, God, I wanna build you a city or a temple. I wanna build you a house. And God says, no way. I'm gonna build you a house. In fact, out of your line is gonna come Messiah, is gonna come Jesus. And David just falls in the dirt and says, who am I that you would do this for me? Dream. Dream. Like Jonathan and his armor bearer against a Philistine garrison, he says, hey, God can save by many or by few. Why won't, why won't he save by you and me? Let's go. Dream. Dream big. Don't let things demolish your dreams. Oh, well, Matt, I feel like a flea in a jar. I feel like I don't try anything anymore. I feel like I've settled. How do I recover that dreamlikeness? Let me give you one more story about another old guy. His name is Caleb. You can turn with me if you want to the book of Joshua, chapter 14. Caleb, if you don't know his story, he's a national hero in Israel at this point, right? When they sent in 12 spies into the land, 10 of them said, we can never take this land. Caleb said, are you kidding me? Those giants in that land are bred for us. We can take them. So God says, the disbelievers, you're gonna die in the wilderness, but Caleb and Joshua, who believed me, who dreamed big, they're gonna go in. So now the land is taken and the inheritance people are being given chunks of land. So this national hero, he's 85 years old at this point, he can choose any land he wants. On the golf course, on the beach. Listen to what he says, here it is, verse 10. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive just as he said these 45 years since the time that Yahweh spoke the word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. Anyone 85 here? Yes. Jim Clark. Caleb Clark. Verse 11, I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So verse 12, give me this hill country of which Yahweh spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there. Great fortified cities. And it may be that Yahweh will be with me and I shall drive them out just as Yahweh said. Then Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephthah, for inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephthah, 
the Kenizzite to this day because he wholly followed Yahweh, the God of Israel. That last phrase in verse six, wholly followed Yahweh, or excuse me, in verse 14, is mentioned six times about Caleb. Caleb, here's what I think happened to Caleb. Caleb, when God rescued the Israelites and he's 40 years old and brought them out of Egypt, and part of the Red Sea, Caleb's mind was so shaped by the reality of who God is that from that point on, he just lived a dream life. Nothing's impossible for him. Nothing's impossible for him. Are you kidding? The giants are bread for us. We serve God. He was shaped by such a great reality that it actually transferred to the way he lived life. God's so great. Are you kidding me? He was confronted with greatness and it transformed him. That can happen. Do you know that? When you're confronted with something greater than you, something incredible, it can actually shape the way you live in ways that you never imagined. I'll give you a very mundane example. I read this about a counselor. And this counselor was dealing with this wealthy but stingy dad who said he could not keep his temper with his son. Son was a teenager, just that, that start, you know, the, what happens with teenagers? It started to happen. And so he kept losing it with his teenage son. And the mom, the wife was like, you can't keep doing this. And he's like, I can't control myself. He gets me. So this counselor was working with them week after week after week. And finally he says this. He started using his wealth and his stinginess. He told this guy, he said, listen, I know a way that will be able to keep you under control of your temper, but you have to agree right now that you'll do it. So this man said, sure, I'll do anything. I promise I'll do anything. Okay, great. From now on, every time you lose your temper, you get out your checkbook and you write a $4,000 check to your wife that she can spend in any way she wants. She can burn it in the stove if she wants to. She can just get the cash and she can take a bath in it. It does not matter. You have no say on that $4,000. Guess what happened? That man all of a sudden found he can control his temper around his son because he was confronted with something that was great to him, money. You and I, as believers, like a Caleb, are supposed to be so confronted with the greatness of Yahweh that we dream big. They would say, are you kidding? God can do anything. God can do this. We're to be those that, like Caleb, were looking for mountains with giants on it. That seems impossible. Like for the first time in maybe history, Josephine County matters in the world, <laughs> right? Because of marijuana. And we can look at it like, oh no, it's the end of the world. Oh great, you know, uh, all these people coming into our land. You know, the trimmigrants are here. Oh great, what are we gonna do? <laughs> or we can be like, hey, there's a mountain with a giant on it. And my God can do anything. And my God can take what this world would use for evil for good. And I'm gonna dream big and I'm gonna pray big, and I'm gonna believe big, like Caleb, like David, like Jonathan. You just go down the list. I'm gonna dream big like John Knox. Give me Scotland or I die. And God gave him Scotland. I'm gonna dream big like William Carey, the father of modern missions, a shoe repair dude in London in 1890, 1790. He's like, we need to get back into missions. And he's called the father of modern missions. Maybe the greatest missionary in the last 500 years incredible man. And this is a statement in life. Expect great things from God 
and attempt great things for God. Dance, dance with God. And he ignited a movement that probably a billion people have been saved because of him. One man in London who believed and dreamed big. Our country, George Whitfield. George Whitfield, if it was not for George Whitfield, America would be Europe right now. He sparked the great awakening. You know how? He said this, God, give me souls or take my soul. Either give me souls or take my, kill me. Kill me. And God began to give him souls and these massive revivals happened and New England was transformed because of George Whitfield. Those, those are dreamers. Those are people that got awakened something in them like, like our friend Abraham. Dream, Edgewater. Pray big dreams, think big dreams. Go back to, what did God tell me? What was I excited about? What, what, what did I think about doing? But now it feels like, you know, I've stopped dreaming. I think today God would say, let me smash that jar you're in and start dreaming and praying again for your kids, for yourself, for your family, for Grants Pass, for Josephine County. Start dreaming big. Something's happening in our county. I've been here for 40 years. There's something happening. And it's really positive. And I'm as excited for Grants Pass as I've ever been in my life. I want to be a part of it, man. I want the mountain with the giant on it. Give me the mountain with the giant on it. Let's take him out. Because God... Nothing is impossible for him. Nothing. Dream. And if you're praying, I ask you to pray this week. God, help me to dream again. Help me to dream big again. Help me to grow younger because I've grown older and it's not that fun. And I'm bored or I'm asleep. <laughs> and I want to start playing in the field again. I want to start doing that again. Help me to grow younger. Help me to dream big. Help me to go for mountains. Help me to take out giants. And if you have a dream that you really feel like God's putting on your heart, email it to me. And the elders and I will pray about it. And maybe we partner with you. Maybe we don't. I don't know. And maybe God's calling you to do it. I don't know. But dream big. And here's the reason why we can dream big. Because right up here, we take the elements. And this bread and this cup, you know what it tells us? Nothing is impossible for God. The greatest enemy to the human is what? Death. Death stalks us all. And yet the Bible says this, Jesus defeated death on the cross. He defeated sin on the cross. He defeated Satan on the cross. He defeated our enemies. What do we have to be afraid of? Nothing. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. So when you eat and you drink, say, Jesus, break glass ceilings. Jesus, help me to dream again. Jesus, help me to be reminded that nothing is impossible for you. And show me a mountain with a giant on it. So Jesus, we ask that. It's so easy to forget about your greatness. Confront us even today with who you are. May we know that it only takes the faith of a mustard seed that the greats just had mustard seed faith. The John Knoxes, the William Careys, the George Whitfields. They had mustard seed faith. The Abrahams, the Davids, the Moseses. And you took that mustard seed faith and you multiplied it a thousand times. 
Oh, may we, may we be those that encounter the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and make jars and glass ceilings be shattered. And may we dream for our community and for ourselves and for our kids and for our family. And may you do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. May we eat and drink that today, I pray. And I ask this in your name, amen.